Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can approach you as our Father. Thank you for uh, your love for us. Thank you for this day, for our fellowship, for one another, for this church family that we are a part of. And Lord, I pray that as Jonathan comes to speak to us this morning, that you would help him and that you'd help us, that we might listen and engage and then in our discussions and questions, I pray that you would uh, use this time we have this morning, uh, that you'd help us to use that well and that you would accomplish for us that which you purpose for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks, appreciate it. All right, um, I'm going to lower the mic a little bit, you know, to my stature. Um, so I just wanted to talk for a few minutes about why I decided on this topic for this talk. Uh, and I've got some negative ones first, right? I mean, there's some things that cause me anxiety when I look around uh, at American society today. All right, so number one, uh, the New York Times has run a series of articles highlighting this epidemic of loneliness. And this is not just a male thing, right? It's a universal thing. But I, I, I kind of feel particularly the ways that it affects my friendships and the friendships of my male friends, right? So there is this kind of withering of male friendship that I've seen. It's been going on for, you know, better part of 50 years, really. Uh, almost the entirety of the post-war era has been characterized by decline, and particularly in male friendships. And, uh, and I think there's a kind of social atomization that's happened that has kind of facilitated that, uh, the decline in friendship. And, and to me, this is a sign of, it's a, a sign of a deep failure of imagination and of despair and of exhaustion, really. Um, that we, we don't give ourselves to friendships because we lack imagination for what friendships are even for, really. Um, so one of the things that I want to do this morning is to highlight like what's actually a positive vision for male friendship. So I'll get there eventually, but that's, um, that's one of the things that, that is concerning to me. Um, the second thing that kind of drove me to this topic was the epidemic of fatherlessness in our nation. I mean, there's some, tr there's some truly eye-popping statistics that go along with this. So in 2015, according to the CDC, so this is actually a legit source, right, 40.3 of all live births occurred outside of wedlock. Just get your heads around that number, 40.3% of all live births. And the crisis is greater in the African-American and Latino communities. 70.2% of all live births in the African-American community are out of wedlock. But when you adjust for socioeconomic status, actually, all of this evens out. Among poor whites, the numbers are as high as they are among African-Americans and Latinos. So there's a profound socioeconomic dimension to this crisis as well, okay? Um, this is important. I mean, this is, this is a really important thing to think about. There is this profound epidemic. It's an epidemic. It's even a pandemic. I would even go that far uh, of fatherlessness in our nation and a lack of imagination about what fatherhood means or what it could be, what it, what it should be. Uh, and to me, that's a deeply concerning thing. And one of the reasons why it's concerning to me is that the sociologist Mary Everstadt uh, in her profound book called How the West Really Lost God, which is a new theory of secularization, she makes the claim that actually secularization, an increase in secularity, goes hand in glove with the decline of families, okay? Because the traditional vehicle for the conveyance of religion of whatever sort is the family. And that's as true for Christianity as it is for any, anyone else. Uh, so the, the failure of family actually is a kind of uh, strong, it bears a kind of strong correlation to the loss of faith uh, in, in generations that succeed. So this is a real problem. It's a real problem for us as a nation. It's a real problem for us as a society. And it's a real problem for us as a church. 
The third thing that really stands out to me as a kind of negative reason to give a talk like this is that sociology shows us that men need scripts for what a success sequence a lot more, actually, than women do. Uh, Kate Hemnowitz, in her book, Manning Up, she links a, a lack of a clear success sequence for men to the rise of what you know, many have called the man-child or the adultescent or the boy who can shave, all these kind of pejorative terms right, for, for, uh, for men who don't seem like men. Right? Um, this, is a, this is something that occurs when men lack an imaginative vision for what it means to be a man. So without scripts, as men, we become anchorless, we become withdrawn, we become depressed, dissipated, pathetic. I mean, all of these things are true. And so we need, clear, we need clearer scripts. We need better scripts, actually, than we've had in the past for what it means to be a man. And even those of us who have had fathers, like even really good fathers, some of the clear roles that fathers used to play with their sons, like the transmitting of practical know-how and skills, to their sons have like, it's really dissipated. In fact, there's a profound disconnect that can be tracked actually between the greatest generation and the baby boomers. Like wh what happened there between baby boomers and Gen X is that there was, a, there was a disruption in that communication of practical skills. Like how do you change your oil? Or like how do you build a cabinet? Or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like I never learned any of those things growing up. But it was because it wasn't seen as terribly important for my father figure, my stepdad, to do for me. And he did a lot of other things for me. I'm not dissing my stepdad at all. Like, my best memories are my stepdad playing baseball with me, like hitting me grounders and teaching me how to field a grounder and teaching me how to throw a baseball, teaching me how to swing a bat. All that stuff he did for me. And he taught me the faith, actually. So I am profoundly grateful. I'm not dissing him. But I'm just saying that that aspect of fatherliness is, is like, kind of become disrupted um, in, in a great measure in our, in our society. And then lastly, there's a, this crisis of masculinity that goes hand-in-hand hand with what I'm going to call the central dogma of secularism, okay? Secularism hides its kind of mythic quality from us because it seems so natural. It's kind of the water we swim in. But it does have a central myth, a central dogma, and it's this. I am my own. That's how we can sum it up. Alan Jacobs sums it up that way. In the myth of secularism, the late modern person is an autonomous, self-creating, utility and pleasure-maximizing individual, cut off and atomized from everyone else. I make myself. I am my own. I have no master. So with no scripts and with this kind of central dogma of I am my own, masculinity becomes whatever we want it to be. Or rather, because masculinity is whatever we want it to be, it becomes a subjective property, actually, that we can attach to whatever we want. So we see you know, this kind of nihilistic, feral, predatory, sexual pro profligacy and corruption of our elites, right? I mean, we, we are in a moment of civilizational calamity because our elites, the people we would naturally look to as role models, are completely unadmirable people. I mean, they are constantly demonstrating their corruption before us. It's a crisis. Who do, we, who do we look to and say, this is a person I can admire. This is a person I can imitate. They're few and far between. But the detachment of masculinity from a clear script combined with this kind of central dogma of I am my own, it creates that kind of climate. And it creates also the detachment of masculinity from embodiment itself. The idea that I feel like a man becomes regardless of our bodies, true, right? I feel like a man, so I am a man. There's a real problem here, actually. I think, it's a, I think it rises to the level of a crisis. 
And these problems are not, you know, out there. They're not like the culture that we need to guard ourselves against. I mean, Christians participate in every sphere of culture. We are shaped by its presuppositions. We share in its anxieties and its uncertainties and its ways of life. And so all of those, all of those difficulties, all those challenges, they're all here with us. I mean, we come in like thinking about these things. We come in kind of convicted in certain ways because we live in this particular culture. So I do think that it's necessary for us as a church to have this conversation. I mean, if we can't have it here, then we can't have it anywhere. And we're the people of God. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm calling us to. I'm not calling us for a return to the 1950s. No one benefits from nostalgia. I mean, the vast majority, I want to say this, and I think it's necessary for us to, to keep it in front of us, in view, because um, it's an important thing that we need to learn from. But the vast majority of human history has been characterized by sexism. And the churches that tend to talk about the revitalization of masculinity or manliness, they tend to be complementarian. I mean, do you guys know that word, complementarian? Okay, it is, it is, uh, there are churches that believe in patriarchy, male headship over home and church at least. Some of them go, go beyond that. Like Wayne Grudem talks about, you know, the, the, the idea that a woman should really not, not be in charge of a man at work, okay? Uh, so some complementarians go further. But churches that affirm and proclaim the full dignity and participation and excellence of women in the home, the workplace, and the church alike, we don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. We don't have the right, we don't have a new script that we want to kind of promote and commend to people. We're afraid. So churches like Ascension, they have a hard time actually talking about this. And I think there are, there are very specific challenges. But I think it is incumbent upon us for us to develop new scripts that are faithful to the Bible, that are more faithful to the Bible, attendant to the, the full counsel of scripture. That's our calling, I think. So I mean, I want to begin this conversation with you this morning. I don't expect this to be the last word. I don't expect you to agree with everything that I say. I hope that it sparks good conversations around the tables here, but then beyond. I want to keep talking about this. I want to, I want to dialogue with you through this because I'm trying to find my way every bit as much as you guys are. And I think I want to say this too. Like, I tremble to stand bef before you talking about manliness this morning. Like, I am not the paragon of godly manliness, okay? Like, I'm not standing here like, I'm the witness. I am the guy that you should be like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, I think probably I would rather put some of, some, of the, some of the rest of you guys up here instead of myself. But we've got to have this conversation in the church. I mean, as I said, like, we've got to take this risk because if we can't have this conversation here, then it can't be had anywhere. So what I want to do this morning is quite simply like highlight a few of the themes that I see in Scripture and in the Christian tradition that stand out to me as vital to a revitalized vision of Christian manliness. And I want to begin this conversation, again, not have the final word. And I also, uh, as uh, Nassim Taleb, who's a contemporary, I don't know what to call him, philosopher, commentator, something like that, he says that anybody that you should listen to should have skin in the game. In other words, they should be trying to put into practice what they're telling you. So I'm going to try to like highlight a couple places where I'm actually trying to put these things into practice. So, all right, let me begin by, ask, by asking, you know, why did I title this talk, A Christian Vision of Manliness? It's an ancient world in which the Bible was written. The words that were associated with virtue and excellence were all words that referred to male attributes. So among the Greeks, the word andrea, or manliness, was the achievement of a person who possessed a rete, or virtue. 
Okay? That's a word that can be translated either virtue or excellence. And the word virtue itself, actually, which comes from the Latin virtu, makes this connection even clearer, right? The connection between, that is, excellence and manliness. Because the, the word virtue comes from the word vir, which is man, okay? So what, the point I'm trying to make here is that in the ancient world, excellence or virtue is a particularly male quality. Now, as I said, this is, this is obviously part of the legacy of sexism, right? Uh, that, that we don't have a vision of what female excellence would look like or female virtue would look like. Um, that's a problem, I think, right? But I, I, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from this tradition of understanding what Andrea, what manliness, and what virtue, arete or virtue, actually means and what it could mean for us today. And we have to have heroes. We have to have examples. We have to have exemplars that we can imitate, that like, we can hold up and say, like, be like this or be like this attribute of this person. I mean, the book of Hebrews says this, right? It says, imitate those who've gone before you. And then it gives us this long list of godly saints, very flawed people, all of them. The Bible doesn't hide any of that from us, right? I mean, David is certainly far from being a flawed man, right? I mean, Moses is far from being a flawed man. And scripture, the wonderful thing about scripture, it doesn't hide any of that from us. But it still commends to us certain attributes of their character and says, hey, be like this. So our vision... This, this morning, as I'm trying, I'm trying to commend to you, is one of selective retrieval of the past and resourcing it for our present so that we can update our scripts to be more faithful to manly excellence in Christ. Everybody clear on that so far? You see what I'm saying? All right. So I, if you only take away one thing from this talk this morning, the thing I most want to stress to you is that manliness is not a static possession or an endowment that you just happen to be born with. It's something that has to be cultivated. It's something that you intentionally mature into. So manliness, in other words, is a project. It's a project of working upon oneself, a process of maturation and growth into masculine identity and self-possession and self-assurance. And this was actually understood by everyone in the ancient world, Jews, Christians, pagans alike. They all understood this. They all grasped this. And we can learn this point actually by looking at you know, the, the sort of classic manual of manliness in the pagan world, the Iliad, which, by the way, required reading for manliness for all of you, the Iliad. So manliness is a project even for someone like the mighty Achilles, okay? In fact, Achilles, the Iliad, presents us as a cautionary tale, okay? He's a negative example of growth and manliness, and it's, it's a cautionary tale about the dangers of having too many unfair advantages naturally, as it were, in one aspect or one area of manliness. Okay, so Achilles is the quintessential warrior, okay? I mean, he is like David's mighty men that we read about in 2 Samuel 23, like all concentrated into a single man. This dude could kill anybody. I mean, he was just astonishing as a warrior. But he's also, and he's also said actually to be extremely handsome, right? So he's both, like, incredibly powerful, incredibly skilled as a warrior, and he's really good-looking, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's actually quite fitting that, that Brad Pitt plays Achilles in the terrible film adaptation of the Iliad, Troy. Don't, don't even watch it. It's just abysmal, right? But, I mean, but it's right that Brad Pitt plays that role. So in the plot of the Iliad, Paris, who's a prince of Troy, elopes with Helen of Sparta, who was married, actually, already, to the king of Sparta, a guy named Menelaus. And this, this kind of elopement is the occasion for the Trojan War, which is led by Agamemnon. 
And Helen's face is therefore, you know, sometimes described as the face that launched a thousand ships, you know. All right. So this, this book is actually about the war between the peoples of Greece and the people of Troy. But actually, it's really about the wrath of Achilles and how it affected the fortunes of that war. You see, above all, Achilles is a man characterized by wrath. He's not primarily characterized by being a warrior or being extremely good looking. He's primarily characterized by wrath, and everybody knows it. And it makes him do all kinds of foolish, idiotic, horrible, completely irreparable damage. He's so naturally powerful, actually, that he doesn't put any energy into the exercise of self-control. He has sex with whoever he wants to, and above all, he kills anybody who makes him mad or insults him. So Patroclus, who is Achilles' much weaker best friend, goes into, goes into battle because he wants to prove himself. And he wears Achilles' armor, so everybody thinks he's Achilles and attacks him, right? And so the, the, the champion of Troy, this guy named Hector, goes into battle against Patroclus, and he kills Patroclus. And, and Achilles is so enraged. And Hector, by the way, i got to say this. Hector is a very good man. He's a good citizen. He's a good dad. He's a good husband. The, the, uh, the whole of the shape of Iliad portrays him such. So it actually kind of puts up against, against Achilles Hector. Hector is a good man. You want to be like this guy. Achilles, not so much, right? Um, but but uh, because Achilles' wrath flares so greatly against Hector, he goes into battle against him. He not only kills Hector, but he desecrates his body. He ties it to the back of his chariot. He drags him around and rips his body apart. But not only that, Achilles' wrath also leads him to desecrate the shrine of Apollo by murdering Troilus, a, a Trojan prince there. He cuts off his head and the blood runs all over the altar. It's, a, it's just truly abysmal scene, right? So the book actually turns out to be a warning in much the same way that the story of Samson is in Scripture, okay? I mean, you know, Sam, you know the story of Samson, right? He's the Nazarite. And as long as his, he keeps his hair, he's possessed of this kind of tremendous strength. And this leads him actually to think that he doesn't need to exercise self-control. And so he goes and he sleeps with the enemy of Israel. He sleeps with Delilah. And she betrays him to Israel's most powerful enemies, the Philistines. And so he's, he's undone by his failure to exercise self-control. See, Achilles' wrath leads him to hubris, to overabundant pride, which calls forth nemesis. And the god Apollo shows up and whispers in Paris' ear, hey, his weakness is his ankle. Achilles heel, right? His Achilles heel. And so Paris shoots him with an arrow and Achilles dies. He's undone by his wrath, by the hubris that that leads him into. Samson is undone by his failure to master his own lust. So it's actually a dangerous thing, according to this literature, to be so naturally manly like Samson or Achilles or David. It makes you think that manliness is a natural endowment and not a lifelong project, which of course it is. St. Paul helps us to think of manliness differently. It's a process of maturation. We need to practice manliness until we grow up into it. And a kind of classic example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says to the men in Corinth, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The word that's translated act like men there is actually andrastista, which is more like put on manliness or practice manliness. Do you get that? It's not be a man. It's practice manliness. Put it on like a garment because you've got to practice it in order to be it. And in order to do that, you're doing it. The reason that you're doing it is so that you can be strong and stand firm in the faith. For Paul, that's the whole point. There's this instructive example, actually, in the tradition in the grail literature of the Middle Ages. 
part of my uh, part of my task here this morning, I think, is also to equip you with essential reading, right? So uh, the, qu- the quest for the Holy Grail, read that, right? Or watch the Mighty Python. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, definitely different. They're definitely different from one another. All right, there, there are a number of different versions of the Grail lore that uh, appear among the Gallic people, which become the French people, the Teutons or the Germans, and the English people. But all of it kind of centers around the stock of characters, Arthur, Lancelot, Gwen, Percival, Galahad, Merlin, and so on, right? So similar characters, different, the, shape, the, the story takes on different shapes in different places, though. Um, but the, the quest literature has been so influential that it spawned a ton of modern versions and a ton of kind of like knockoffs or like imitations, right? So the most famous, um, the most famous uh, modern version is probably T.H. White's The Once and Future King, also a fantastic book. If you haven't read that, definitely pick that up. Um, and it's also inspired tons of imitative literature, probably most famously The Lord of the Rings, right? So, so, you know, I mean, take, pick up these books and read them. Right? I mean, they're, they're amazing books. I mean, and they're, they're deeply masculine literature. If you think you don't like to read, actually, what you should do is pick up one of these books. Because they're, they're real page turners, actually. And, and they, it's really easy to identify with the characters. So what's really instructive about this kind of medieval grail literature is that it highlights that your life is a quest. Okay? It has a quest character. In other words, your life has a final destination a goal that you should be seeking, and there is a long and perilous journey that takes you there. There's much suffering, sorrow, uncertainty, fear, and loss, and so many high-stakes decisions that you have to make over the course of your life in order to finish well. And because the journey is characterized by this perilous quality, there are certain characteristics, certain skills, certain virtues that you have to develop in order to confront that. You can't just sort of bumble your way through the journey or you will fail. And the quest highlights different characters in the, in the kind of plot. You know, you've got, you've got the knights and you've got the king and you've got the mage and all this kind of stuff in order to kind of tell us what these different characteristics are that you need to develop and master. The Bible tells us what our goal is. It tells us what our grail is. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. It is to be and to continually become citizens of the heavenly kingdom. The heavenly city that does not decay and can never be conquered. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 16 maybe says it best. The saints were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the goal. That's the grail. For the ancient pagans, there was no goal that was higher than being a citizen, a man of the city, and all the virtues, all the excellences to be cultivated were for this goal, to be a man with the strength and the conviction and the wisdom to be able to defend the good things and protect the good things of the city. But for Christians, our citizenship is primarily in the heavenly city, the one that never fades or rusts or is conquered. And we are strangers, exiles, and sojourners in our earthly cities. And we work for the good of, of, of our earthly cities, but the primary virtues or excellences that we must cultivate are the virtues necessary for citizenship in the heavenly city. So this is the same goal for men as it is for women, but we have different journeys to get there, different struggles, different perils that we face. There's much that is good that is lost on the way to this 
heavenly city, our journey to this heavenly city. And I, I've, been, uh, you know, I've been rereading Lord of the Rings this year with Tish, and uh, there's this profound moment, and uh, in the, the company has just gone through Moria, and they've lost Gandalf. I mean, ha- you guys have all read Lord of the Rings, right? I'm not, I'm not, huh? No spoilers. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's like 75 years old, guys. If you, if you, if it's just a spoiler at this point, you know, I mean, all right. So they, they're, they've already journeyed through, uh, through Moria, and Gandalf has, has fallen in the, um, in the pit with the Balrog. Uh, and so the company, uh, you know, in its grief, processes to um, Lothlorien. And at Lothlorien, they meet the elf queen, Galadriel. And she says to the company, this I will say to you. Your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Really, like, challenging words, right? The point is the quest can only remain faithful as long as the company remains true. And this tells us actually that the greatest peril that we face in this journey comes from our own faithlessness, our own lack of steadfastness, our own lack of character. So that the challenge above all comes from our passions, our temptations that are inside of us. Now, passions in this sense isn't like having a passion for carpentry or something, right? It means disordered emotions. Evagrius of Pontus in the 4th century calls them sad thoughts. And elsewhere, these, these, these are called the capital vices, which comes from the Latin word caput, which means head or source. These sad thoughts, these capital vices, they're the source of all the terrible things we do. They're not the terrible things themselves, but they're the source of all of those betrayals, all of those horrible things that we do. And they're usually listed as seven. Gluttony, lust, greed, pride, sadness, wrath, vainglory. But sometimes there's an eighth, sloth or Acadia, that's added. All of, them are po- all of them are very important. I would encourage you to read about them. Uh, Graham Tomlin has uh, a great book on the seven deadly sins. I would absolutely recommend that one to you. It's very kind of uh, pithy and easy to read. <clears throat> it's easier for us to see the quest character of our life and the need to do battle against those passions, to wage war against them, to mortify them. That's the classic Christian language of it. Uh, put them to death, right? It's easier to see that when we're in times of great crisis than in so-called, you know, peacetime, when it seems like nothing's really at stake. It's actually in peacetime that our peril is greatest because we're not aware of our peril. We're not aware of the fact that we're on a quest, that we're on a journey. And then it is easiest to be dominated by and enslaved by our passions. So there's this character in the Grail lore. His name is the Fisher King. And he has a wound to his groin that makes him depressed and idle, and it makes his whole kingdom infertile. He sits sadly by the riverside fishing all day while the crops wither and the animals can't reproduce. And this character is meant to be an allegory. Like, this is a man who lives in peacetime, and he hasn't figured out that his life is a quest, that there's a reason to put on manliness to conquer boredom and sloth and indifference. And this is like the guy who sits on, on the couch all day, you know, playing video games and eating Cheetos, right? I mean, like, that we have our contemporary versions of the Fisher King. And so this story teaches us that the conquest of our passions, especially those passions that lead us to indifference, is absolutely essential. I mean, lust, but also Acadia, this, 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 this um, vice of sloth, of lust and of wrath, of all the capital vices. The whole book of Proverbs and really all of the wisdom literature and scripture is devoted to helping us overcome and channel these passions. I don't say tame the passions, because it actually, the goal is not to pacify 
all of these impulses and drives in us, it's to channel them, to direct them into something brilliant and beautiful for the sake of something greater. When St. Paul says, for example, flee fornication, and he tells the Corinthians that I discipline my body and make it my servant rather than being its servant, that's not primarily a negative exhortation. He's not saying, hey, stop lusting. He's saying, hey, I channel all the energy that would go to lust. I harness it for something profound, for something that goes beyond me. Paul was actually celibate his whole life, and so was Christ. That's not the calling for most of us, but they are instructive examples, actually. It is possible to live a life that is beautiful and meaningful and flourishing without having sex. Sexual energy is not simply to be channeled for the sake of sex, but to be sublimated, to be directed and channeled into something greater. So in our, our present moment, actually, we have two contrasting visions of sex. Jonathan Grant describes them as apocalyptic romance on the one hand and sexual realism on the other. So on the one hand, we have all these kind of Hollywood visions of love that will save us, you know, finally give our lives meaning, take us from black and white to technicolor. And that vision is actually kind of waning as a result of the despair associated with the sexual revolution. It's still there, though. It's very much still there. The other vision is what Grant calls sexual realism. It's the sense that sex is just a kind of biological drive like any other drive. You know, and pressure builds up and you have to release it by masturbating or having sex or whatever it is. That's all that sex is. It's nothing more. So we kind of oscillate back and forth between those two positions. What the scriptures teach us actually is that both of these visions profoundly miss the mark. And they diminish you as a man. The scriptures counsel us differently. Another way is possible. A more beautiful way is possible. A more magnificent way. Proverbs says, hey, fathers, teach this to your sons. Don't become an adulterer when you're young, but instead throw yourself into backbreaking and labor and mind-melting study. Labor yourself, it says this, to the point of exhaustion with these things when you are young. Learn the right things when you're young, when you have all the energy, when you have all the passion, when you have all of this sexual energy that's built up and, and like ready to go. It actually even goes so far to suggest kind of animal totems, like animals whose behavior you should imitate, be like this. So it says, consider the ant. The ant labors ceaselessly, but then it has enough to support the colony during hard times. Be like the ant. In other words, develop as many skills as you can that will equip you to be self-sufficient. Learn as much as you can so that you can be proficient in the world. And above all, learn to do battle against your passions that seduce you away from these tasks and from the quest character of your life. Do it to the point of exhaustion. Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. I mean, how many of us have resisted sin even to the point of boredom? I mean, I know that I regularly fail in this, and and worse yet, I mean, I regularly even fail to see my peril, that there's like a problem. The scriptures call us to the development of courage and valor in this task. It's important to point out here that we are wired in such a way, like, I mean, you know, neurology and sociology are telling us this, that we gravitate towards risk-taking. We're actually, you actually, you know, there's, there's actually a kind of neural pathway that's set up for, for men specifically that causes us to gravitate towards risk-taking. This is why, like, so many dudes constantly sabotage their lives through, like, risky sex and other stupid behaviors. And it's also why men have so regularly been drawn to military service. 
Like in, in the modern age, there's no other company in which the drive towards risk-taking can be disciplined and focused on a good that goes beyond the mere gratification of desire. So the military is an extremely attractive way of life for men. And as a church, I think we need to think about this. Now, how are we providing opportunities for our young men to develop courage and valor in the service of the gospel? Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying women don't need to be challenged to take risks for the gospel. There's a kind of learned helplessness, actually, among women that needs to be combated. But I'm thinking of our young men right now. I don't know what the answer is. I don't. I mean, I, I don't know how we do this, but I know that we have to, and we have to learn how to do it together. We need to dream about this. I want to hear your ideas. Tell me what they are. And I think one of the losses in modernity, one of the ways that we have been diminished as men, is that it has taken away almost all of the opportunities to exercise courage and valor. We've made our lives extremely safe, and it's actually really bad for men. So in the grail lore, the knight is the chief character. How much time do I have? Am I supposed to be done right now? Oh, man. Okay. I've got ten minutes. All right, good. So in the grail lore, the, the knight is the chief character. And above all, the knight's quality is that is courage and valor. So Leonard Sachs, who's a physician, says this, the solution to taming a boy's aggressive drive is not to squelch the drive every time it appears. It's to channel it. It's to give it direction. Um, so there's a, a woman named Julie Collins who's a counselor that he quotes, a high school counselor. She says, you can't turn a bully into a flower child, but you can turn a bully into a knight. So her motto is, affirm the knight. That should be the motto for all of us in the church. Affirm the knight. All of us long to exercise courage and valor. What are the ways that we're teaching our men to do this? And above all, how are we teaching our men to combat our passions so that we can devote ourselves to the good? Look, I want to talk about one other way in which the scriptures commend to us a way for channeling our sexual passions into family and fatherhood. All of these things kind of go together in a success sequence in the scriptures. Be diligent. Labor hard as a young man so that you can be a provider and, and work hard in your family and not get discouraged when things go hard and you fail because you're going to fail. And the challenge to you is what do you do when you fail? Do you get back up? Do you keep going? Or do you get discouraged? and Do you sink into despair and, and depression? It says be diligent and labor hard as a young man so that doesn't happen. The man, it's not, this is not actually because the man is supposed to be the primary breadwinner. I want to make that extremely clear. That's a completely modern construct. Like all, wor all work in the ancient world besides soldiering was done in the home. In fact, the word economy comes from the Greek word oikos, which means home. And the, uh, the oikomene was the proper ordering of the household so that it was productive. It was work that was shared by both men and women in the home. And like actually, children got to develop and learn these skills in the context of a properly functioning home where both men and women are laboring together, actually. And it's, it's no secret that, like, children stopped, um, like, admiring their parents when work was outsourced from the home and they could no longer see what their parents did for work. So the issue is not that you have to be a, the, the primary breadwinner for your family, but, like, what kind of man are you? Like, a woman will not respect a man who does not work hard, who is lazy and a time waster. Like, you've got to work hard. You've got to learn this discipline. Okay. The family context, though, that is the, that is the channel that Scripture counsels for most of us to channel our sexual energies. Your sexuality is oriented towards fertility, toward a relationship that is capable of generating children so that you can then take responsibility for them. 
And in the scriptures, both husband and wife have a responsibility for the rearing of children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I mean, Proverbs 1.8 says it as plainly as possible. Hear your father's teaching, my son, and do not turn away from your mother's teaching. Both, father and mother. And again, in the Industrial Revolution, we lost sight of this. Women were kind of assigned to the domestic sphere and became responsible for making virtuous citizens. While men, you know, we needed to be strong so that we could, we could kind of survive the cut and thrust of the market. But, uh, but, you know, men were actually kind of a source of temptation, right, for both men, women and children. And they, they became kind of predatory in their outlook. But Scripture's vision is very different. Men are nurturers along with women in different, ra- different ways with different roles. You, along with your wife, are the chief catechist of your child. You must instruct them and model godliness for them. That's the, that's the counsel of Scripture. But it goes beyond that. It's even harder than that, right? Because it says you have to also be vulnerable and apologize when you've done damage. And you have to be tenderhearted towards them. It's a high calling. Paul says, do not grieve your children in in Ephesians. My friend Esau Macaulay, uh, he was here for a men's breakfast a few months ago. He recently wrote in Christianity Today about a, a little commented upon aspect of the prophecy of Zechariah in the scriptures. It says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He's actually quoting an identical prophecy in Malachi. So when a man is converted to Christ, Christ turns his heart towards his children. And a sign of the gospel going forward, making strides in the family, is the Messiah's ability to put back together again what sin has torn apart. What about those men who never marry or who never have children? Do they have no fatherly role to play? Is there no role for fatherhood and sonship for these men? No. Paul himself tells us the answer to this. All of us are adopted. We're baptized into and adopted into the family of God, which is the church. And the church becomes the first family, not in the sense that it replaces natural families, but it becomes the context for understanding what those families are for in the first place. And it becomes the place of belonging, both for those families and for those who don't have other families and for those whose families have rejected them. God sets the lonely in families. Psalm 68 says. Paul says in several places too, I have become your father through the gospel. I have become your father through the gospel. So there are these relationships that emerge organically within the church of spiritual fatherhood and sonship. Fatherhood and sonship in the gospel. And actually the scriptures envision the older men in our church stepping into this role. And that's why it actually counsels reverence for the aged, right? Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall rise up in the presence of the gray-headed and honor the aged. Why? Because Psalm 92.14 says that the elderly will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. Why? How is that? Because they are fathers to the sons of the church. This casts a vision for elderly men in our church. Combat your passions, devote yourself to Christ, that you might become examples for younger men to look up to, to be the models. You get to be the venerable elder statesmen and fathers of our church. What a beautiful vision. Oh gosh, I have no time left. I have more to say. I have more to say. Um, One of the most um, helpful disciplines, uh, talked about having skin in the game, one of the most helpful disciplines I've discovered in my struggle against my great many vices is, uh, is a rule of life and the practice of spiritual direction. And, uh, and I want to credit 
uh, Grant Martzolf in great measure uh, and the community of St. Barnabas um, for learning this and learning what it looks like practically to have one of these. Um, the rule of life is an intentional ordering of all aspects of one's life so, so as to work daily to overcome one's passions so as to live faithfully. Our Anglican Catechism to be a Christian, uh, question 251, says it this way. The rule of life is a devotional discipline in which I commit to grow in grace as I resist sin and temptation in order to, and, and to order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Okay? It's basically to take an intentional look at your life to figure out the places where you need to grow and to mark the path of progress towards that goal. It's just to exercise intentionality in your spiritual life and development so you can combat your passions, so you can devote yourself to the things that matter. And spiritual direction, as the name suggests, is submitting yourself to a guide who can help you find the way, who can remind you consistently that your life, even in peacetime, has a quest character to it, and to help you above all to overcome the passions that sabotage you along the way and to channel them effectively. So the rule is developed in collaboration with the spiritual director, and the spiritual director in a loving way helps you stay accountable to it and to find Christ in your life. Where is Christ at work? For that reason, the spiritual director was sometimes called in the tradition the soul friend, the one who loved your soul and who sought Christ in you. To my last point for the morning, I'll try to go through this quickly. The quest character of life also highlights the centrality and the importance of male friendship. Male and female friendships are also important, I believe. I, I, I strongly believe in that. But I, what I want to highlight now is also the importance of male friendships. I mean, notice that in both the Grail literature and its modern adaptations like the Lord of the Rings, right, the friends that form around the quest are called a fellowship or a company. The fellowship of the ring, right? And this is crucial. Profound male friendships are forged around a commitment to building something profound and lasting, a project so absorbing that its centrality can never be doubted and its meaning never exhausted in your life. It's something that has the power to order your life and your behavior to call you to become the most excellent version you can be of yourself and around developing the skills and virtues necessary to work towards this goal. That's what male friendship has always looked like. I mentioned that physician, Leonard Sachs. I mean, he draws upon some really interesting sociological and neurological research that's been done recently around the differences between male and female friendship. And he says, we can characterize the difference in this way. Male friendships are primarily shoulder to shoulder, and female friendships are primarily face to face. Again, I say primarily. It doesn't mean that you can't just enjoy somebody's company, but it does mean the best and most lasting male friendships are shoulder to shoulder, oriented towards a task. So I don't know if you, if you noticed the image I used to promote this talk. It's an icon of the greeting of St. Peter and St. Paul. Okay? And in this image, they're actually embracing one another. They're face-to-face in a profound sign of friendship. But if you read the story of their relationship in the book of Acts, I think it's safe to say it's a little fraught. You know? I mean, Paul, who was called Saul, is one of, the, one of the chief persecutors of the church. He's present in overseeing the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. And then he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, which is, you know, like a little hard for Peter to swallow. I mean, it requires this profound vision of the sheep being lowered down from heaven by God and God saying, hey, don't call unclean what I've called clean for him to even be persuaded that maybe Gentiles could be included. And then in Galatians, Paul, Paul recounts the story where Peter kind of like, he, he, he becomes a little wobbly in his commitment to that vision. And he goes and has table, fish, tele, table fellowship exclusively with the Jews. And Paul goes up to his face and, and uh, rebukes him. Like he shames him in front of his whole crew. 
You know, like, like that's not an easy relationship. And this icon, nonetheless, depicts their friendship. And Andy Crouch was in an Orthodox church contemplating this icon, which was hung on the wall, an icon of the, of the greeting of St. Peter and Paul. A priest came up and stood next to him and summarized the icon with the word synospismas, which means shield brothers. They're brothers in the battle, battle of faith. Saints Peter and Paul were friends and brothers, not because they naturally liked each other. I can imagine them kind of being like annoyed and like not that like friendly actually to each other. But it's because they were both committed to partnership in the gospel. We have such an impoverished vision of friendship and modernity. I mean, the ancients would not recognize what we call friendship as friendship. Aristotle said there are two things which some people call friendship which are not friendship at all. Number one, friendships of mutual affinity. Okay? Like, this is like people you like playing video games with and having a beer with. Aristotle says that's not friendship. Second is friendships of mutual usefulness. People who can do something with you. Or something for you, excuse me. Aristotle says that doesn't count as friendship. Okay, these are weak versions of friendship. The, understand, the only friendship that really counts, according to Aristotle, is friendship that is devoted to the good of the city. Virtue, formative friendship. The scripture commends the same vision to us. I mean, think about Jonathan and David. In 1 Samuel 18, it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul and that his friendship was better than the love of a woman. Okay, our, our, our vision of friendship is so impoverished in the modern age that commentators are like, they must have been gay. No, they were virtue-formative friends. They were committed to something bigger than themselves, the defense of Israel. And scripture is confirming here what we learn from other accounts of friendship in antiquity, like Aristotle's and Cicero's. The only kind of friendship that counts, the friendship that is most important, is the friendship that is forged in the fire of the commitment to something that is everlasting. And for the ancient pagans, that thing was the city. And so all pagan accounts of friendship had a kind of tragic character to them because the, the city ultimately ends, right? But for Christians, that friendship can be redeemed and brought up into heaven itself. It will be everlasting because it's devoted to a city which is never ending. Okay? Our friendship should not be less robust because they're not devoted to the city. They should be more robust because they're devoted to the heavenly city. All right, there's a lot more that I could say and a lot more that needs to be said about manliness. But I, I hope this is like the beginning and not the end of our conversation. I mean, I, I said that at the beginning. I don't want this to be the last word spoken. I want it to be the beginning. But above all, what I want you to take away is that your life is a quest and that your manliness is a project and a process. You and I have agency in that respect. We are able to put on manliness. And that God has set us in each other's lives and made us a fellowship and a company, actually, that we might help each other mature. So that's, that's all I have to say. I, we have a, a little bit of time, I think, left for Q&A, so. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, I'm not sure I have the solution, right? Huh? Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, so Dan's question uh, was, okay, so, you know, he and Ruth were not able to have children, uh, and, and some of their friendships when he was younger drifted apart because of that fact, and that was a sorrowful thing. So uh, and he's kind of asking, like, how do we make a start into this, these kinds of, like, spiritual fatherhood and sonship relationships? And I'm not sure I totally know the answer, right? I mean, I, I don't have all the solutions here. Uh, but I think, number one, like, it's important to grieve that fact um, that you guys weren't able to have chil children. I mean, that, that's, that's hard, you know? And it's, it's also, I think, to be grieved that, like, your friends drifted, 
as a result of that. I mean, that's, that's really hard stuff, man. And uh, so, you know, one of the things I think, if we're talking about new scripts, like the script that includes vulnerability as men, that has to be part of it. I mean, like we, we have to be able to share our sorrows with each other. So I just want to acknowledge that, right? I mean, but then, so secondly, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, take an interest in the younger men in the church, right? Like get to ask them out for coffee, that kind of stuff. I mean, you can't force these things to happen, but it might be the case that like some of the younger men and you like really like each other. And then that, that nation, that relationship emerges organically. So that's kind of how I envision it happening. Yeah, go ahead. Did everybody hear that? Confirmation sponsors or mentors uh, among the youth group, uh, each, each one of the youth that's coming up towards confirmation gets paired with a mature Christian in the congregation. And so to become a, a, a confirmation sponsor or mentor uh, might be a way to, for this to happen in a kind of institutional sense. So, yeah, Alex. There you go, Dan. There's your answer, man. I remember moving to couch with you recently. He's like, he came out with all the straps and everything, and dude's like lifting up like huge amounts of weight. So clearly, you know, manly man right here. Anyone else? Dave. Amen. Did everybody hear Dave just now? I'll repeat it just, just, uh, just for make sure everybody heard it. But uh, he was saying that most men don't intuitively know how to be fathers, right? I mean, most of us don't know how to be either, you know, fathers of our own children or, uh, or spiritual fathers. And so it is really crucial, actually, for us to develop relationships, like, with a spiritual director or a discipler or a mentor, actually, who can, who's, who's a little bit further down the path from us that can help us develop and grow in these ways. So I would encourage all of those things to you. I mean, so the, the roles of fatherhood and sonship are absolutely crucial in scripture. And it's like, we're always both, right? Always both sons and fathers. And so learning like who are, who is our spiritual father? Like that, like that, I mean, obviously our heavenly father, but like, but our, 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 our the person that we know that can help guide us in the path, like that's really important for us. So, yeah. Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think the term for that is misanthrope. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, but, you know, I, I do think there are, there are different, there are personality differences, right? I mean, like, I'm an extrovert, uh, and so I used to love, like, going to parties and, like, just talking to everybody and, like, talking in big groups of people. Like, I want to have, like, seven or eight people around me. But actually, as I've grown older, I don't like that anymore. Like, I really hate it, actually. And so I go to a party now, and I'll, like, I'll, like zero in on one person and just talk to them for 30 minutes, and then move to another person and talk to them for 30 minutes. So that's like, it's changed a little bit for me, actually, over the course of my life. It's been interesting to observe. Uh, but I have lots of male friends who are introverts, but like, I don't think, I don't think there's a, a difference in like what is necessary, but I think there's a difference in the way or the mode in which it happens. So I think like maybe like more one-on-one -on -one kinds of interactions, like invite somebody to coffee so you like, you're only interacting with that one person, and then have plenty of like downtime afterwards, right? Uh, whatever you need to do, like read a book or pet a cat or something. You know, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what you introverts do. <laughs> John. That's, uh, so let me just repeat uh, John's point for everybody. Um, the, the point is uh, that, so let me, let me make sure I understand you. Actually, this is kind of an active listening exercise, right? So, so John's point is that th there seems to be, um, you know, a lot of concern about what is masculinity, which is what I highlighted at the beginning, right? Uh, and so the, the question is, uh, you know, what is the proper script for becoming a man? Uh, and he says, we don't actually need to worry about that so much because uh, we need to put accent more on, the, on, on what is the natural endowment of being a man uh, that then matures kind of naturally into manhood. Is that, is that correct? Or 
sort of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, so there's places where I can agree with that point. I mean, obviously, we're, we're going to have some disagreements on that. Um, but the place that I can agree is I would love to emphasize the, the seminal quality of manhood that is in all of us, right? So there's, there's like the seed of what will become manliness or manhood in all of us. Uh, and that is actually what makes it possible for us to develop as men uh, and to mature as men. Uh, now, I'm not, I, I don't know if I can agree that there's not a necessity of a guide or a script. I mean, I just think, like, that's sociologically not borne out. Um, but uh, I can agree with you that there's lots of false scripts and that a true script or a true set of scripts is going to um, involve... Uh, advancements upon what our past scripts have been. In other words, there's lots of false elements in our past scripts, and they've been worthily forgotten and jettisoned. But, uh, but to say that we can survive without scripts doesn't, doesn't ring true to me. So, I mean, yeah, we just maybe disagree on that point. Oh. Oh, hold on one second, Dave. Alan had a question or a comment. Yeah, to repeat Alan's point for everybody, uh, that's just a great one, Alan. Uh, he said that they that he uh, and Linda don't have any kids, and uh, and so he and his first wife, actually at Ascension, were adopted into several different families, right? So they were incorporated into table fellowship with different families, and and to, and to invited into a deeper relationship with them. So if you have a family, consider like adopting somebody really in the church. Uh, was, was his point, and I think that's a good one. Um, David, you had a you had a point as well. This is true. Did, did everybody hear it, Dave? It was a, sort of a, a somewhat complex argument, but he was saying that there's several points in the scriptures that spell out, actually address specifically men and women, and he referenced uh, Titus 2, Ephesians 5, and First Peter 3, correct? Yeah. So that's, a, that's an important point as well. Jim. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic point, Jim. Um, uh, so he was saying that uh, a crucial element uh, for us to recover, really, in our, our male friendships is, uh, is the element of loyalty, uh, loyalty within friendship. Um, and that, that, you know, he can kind of attest to in his own life that there, there have been friendships that have become disposable or we've lost sight of people or whatever over time uh, rather than exhibiting that quality of loyalty. And I would completely agree with that. It's really interesting, actually. Uh, I mentioned all these kind of ancient accounts of friendships. Like, what they all prize more than anything else is loyalty. So, uh, you know, when Cicero talks about what a, what a true friend is, it's someone who's fundamentally loyal to you and loyal to the thing that you're both loyal to, right? So, uh, and, then they, and then that friend becomes the kind of person who can actually, because Cicero says they're like another self, right? And, jo and Jonathan says the same thing about David, right? Uh, that they're almost another self. You can talk to them in such a way. There's such intimacy and loyalty there. You can actually rebuke them and say, like, you're not actually living like you're supposed to be living, uh, and so that's actually, it's not just like, I got your back, but it's also like, I can rebuke you and I can call you to be a more excellent version of yourself because there's such uh, trust and such intimacy and such loyalty there at the root of the relationship. I love that. That's fantastic. Thanks. Uh, anyone else or should we get going with it? I think we should probably get going with the table discussion. So Jonathan, do you want to help us with the transition or should I go ahead and do that? Okay. Uh, so we're, we're going to turn now in the last, uh, I guess you have, you know, 25 minutes or so uh, to talk about the questions that are on your placemat on the tables around, around the table. So um, we can just kind of turn our attention to that now.